0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, this morning we'll be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 10, starting with verse 34. Uh, Take up your cross, being worthy of the one who is worth it. Uh, So, you want to follow along as I read Matthew 10:34 through 42. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Um, This morning... um, Jesus' words here are, ought to be for us a little uh, jolting and a little unsettling. Um, and so I want to uh, just pray before we begin, because I don't want to get myself in trouble. Like it's one thing to say things that I mean to say, uh, they get me, people angry at me, but uh, I don't want to be misunderstood, right? So I'm going to pray that God helps me not be misunderstood. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we... Um, uh, we want to hear you speak. We want to hear your truth and your message. And so we ask that you would just remove the obstacles and help us to hear clearly what you're saying. And uh, Lord, we, we don't want to be uh, saying things that get misunderstood or that aren't aren't rooted in your word, but we want to be teaching your word uh, with the power of your spirit. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the. Uh, COVID pandemic may be kind of wearing us out. Does anybody feel just worn out from all this stuff, right? It's a little bit exhausting, but uh, we're meeting this morning and there's hope that um, this is not going to last forever. Um, they keep warning us that it could be another year, but we, we hope it, it's not, right? But even if it's another year, there's this hope that it's, it's going to eventually, uh, they'll come up with a vaccine or it will end. Uh, but it's interesting this past week, as, as if you've been watching the news and seeing what's going on, uh, the world has erupted into protests and riots, and, and we just see the strife um, in the world. And sadly, this kind of strife and conflict, unlike the corona pandemic, uh, is not going to go away, right? It's, it's been a perpetual problem of our world. And in many ways, it's just far more exhausting, uh, you may feel like, why is there so much unrest and conflict? Why is it people just can't get along? Uh, why is it there uh, there is people treating each other uh, in such horrible ways? And uh, as I've watched the news, I've I felt like, why can't there just be peace? Why can't people just like each other and treat each other with respect and dis and and, and dignity? Um, and and along with that, uh, as 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 you, if you. Are following things and what's going on? There's this pressure to do something about this outcry for justice. Right? There's, there's this, this call that we need to respond, and the big thing is you need to do something, right? We need to do something. Well, what are we to do about the outcries of the oppressed and the afflicted? What are we to do about all that's going on when we see people being oppressed, and not just in the United States, but all over the world? Afflicted and oppressed people are trampled often. There's this call that you can't just sit around and watch, that you have to do something about it, right? And so there's this big call to do something, which usually means, like, post something on Facebook. There, I did something. I posted. I've taken a stand, right? Like, um, and, and maybe that's good. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, so, so how do we respond, right? How do we respond to all this stuff that's going on around us in our world? Well, for, for young people, and what I've kind of observed, for people who are like in their teens, maybe up to 30 ish, uh, this is kind of a new thing. And they haven't lived long enough to know that this is not a new thing. And for them, it's kind of a revelation. It may be a good revelation, maybe an important revelation, that, that there are people maybe living across the street or people they work with who feel very oppressed, who feel downtrodden, who feel picked on. And, and that they are oftentimes the objects of injustice and mistreatment. Uh, and so they feel this outrage maybe for the first time. And so they're getting all fired up and joining in and wanting to join in the protest because they, they feel moved and stirred to action. And that's not a, a bad thing necessarily. But for those of us who are older, uh, who have been around this a few times, we know this is actually not a new thing. Like this has been going on since before I was born. And uh, in my lifetime, I've been through this wave of, of protests and violence several times. As some of you, well, I won't name people, I won't pick on April. would, would never do that. But uh, April probably remembers even more than I do, right? Of how this has been an ongoing theme in America and in other places in the world. Um, and I'm going to share just a little bit. I'm going to get to Matthew in a minute and you'll see why this matters, why this connects in a second, I hope. But let me just share a little bit of my own experience. Uh, as we as we think about this, my first encounter with race issues uh, went back, um, not when I was young, actually, not, not super young, because I grew up very isolated. I lived in a very uh, in, in western Colorado and in central Colorado, where I don't think there was a black or Asian or maybe a Hispanic uh, somewhere. But I didn't know any of them. I had no exposure. So I was very sheltered from um, from the, the struggles and, and hardships of, of ethnic minority groups. But in 1996, I went and attended a Promise Keepers Pastors Conference in Atlanta. And I remember this, but 1996, these are getting old people, because some of you are like, I wasn't even born in 1996, right? But some of you are around in 1996, and you remember, any of you remember Promise Keepers? Okay, proof you're old, right there. Those are the old people, right there. Um, how many of you went to a Promise Keepers event? Okay, I uh, see How many of you went to the uh, pastor's conference in Atlanta? Okay, I was the only one in this room anyway. This was amazing. 40,000 pastors gathered in this uh, stadium. And it really was very powerful and in many ways very life transforming. And uh, during that time, they talked about a lot of things about integrity and character and caring for your families. But one of the issues that they landed on was this issue of racial division in the church. And there a, a, was in Atlanta, a very black city, a lot of black pastors there. And during the pastors come up and share their feelings, their experiences of what it had been like for them growing up black in America and feeling outside and feeling like they didn't fit in and feeling picked on and, and, um, and sometimes worse, right? Sometimes worse just because they were black. And it was very powerful. It was the first time that I kind of had my eyes open to how people of different races felt. And I, I just assumed they saw the world just like I did. They I didn't understand that their experience was very different. And so it really opened up my eyes. And I, I, I was very convicted, not be, that I was prejudiced or that I ever mistreated black people or that I hated them. I certainly didn't. I, had, I, did, I didn't know anything about that. But what I realized is that I was guilty of being ignorant and uncaring. For me, it's like, well, they, they don't live next to me. They're not in my community. I don't, I don't know them. And so I don't really care what they go through. And so I was very convicted that it was not right as for brothers in Christ for me to be indifferent to their struggle and what they were going through. And so it was a very healing time and during that whole conference forty thousand pastors were all weeping and crying and, and there was lots of hugging, you know, and just coming around these black brothers and loving them and, and really some huge I think walls of division were broken in the church at that time, right? Uh, nineteen ninety six, that was twenty four years ago. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, but that wasn't the end of it. That, that, that did not fix the problem. Okay, I hope it made changes in the church, and I hope churches started to interact with each other more. But uh, four years ago, four or five years ago, maybe at our Acts twenty nine, which our church is part of a network called Acts twenty nine, um, went to a pastor's gathering, and the same issue came up because there is a lot of black pastors in, in the Acts twenty nine network, and, and they shared the exact same. So it was like it was like an instant replay of what I heard in Atlanta. And these pastors shared the exact same stories. And these were good guys. These are not guys that are complaining. These are not guys that are uh, have some axe to grind. But they were guys who had shared very real experiences of feeling um, in many ways picked on, isolated, uh, discriminated against. Uh, and, and it was it's hard to hear that again. right? The same thing, of course, as brothers in Christ, we gathered around them. We uh, we prayed for them. We reaffirmed our commitment to hear their stories and to listen and to understand what they were going through. Uh, but here we are in 2020, and and it's still happening again, right? It's still happening again. Um, and there's this call there's this call to do something, uh, and there's this feeling that we need to fix this, uh, that, that we need to do something. And I really hope that in the body of Christ, I think in the body of Christ there is room and there is uh, a way to do something, whether it's black people in America or Asians or uh, you know, people uh, in, in Asia who are picked on, minority tribal groups who are picked on and oppressed. Uh, the call of the gospel is for us to come alongside those oppressed people and understand their stories and, and help them. Um, but, but, but here's the thing. When, when, I would, when I went to Promise Keepers and I experienced it, it changed me a lot. It changed my perspective a lot. It did not change society, right? It did not change anything in American culture at all, right? At all. Um, and, and, and so there's another cry for justice. There's still more people being oppressed and hurt and mistreated, right? And so, so what, do we, what do we do? How do we respond to this as the church, as Christians? Um, we're told, and I've heard this several times that rioting is the language of the unheard. Have you heard that yet? If you haven't heard it, you haven't been surfing Facebook enough. What are you doing with your time, right? You need to get on Facebook more. Rioting is the language of the unheard. And it's this idea that, yeah, nobody's listening. They don't listen to us unless we start trashing stuff. And so we're justified because it's the only way our voice will be heard. And I think... um, I, I think there's some truth in that, because people are listening now, it seems to work, right? And in the world, that may be how it works, right? But as Christians, is that, is that what we do, right? Do we go out there and join in the riots and protests and trash stuff so their voice will be heard? Is that our way? Uh, well, it might be the way of the world, but the, the Bible is different. And, and Scripture actually talks a lot about the oppressed and the afflicted. In fact, if you, I'd, I'd encourage you to go home and, and just do a search. On those two words, oppressed and afflicted, it will bring up hundreds of hits in your Bible. And it is amazing how God is concerned about the oppressed and the afflicted. Right? And here's just two examples. And, and here's the thing. In the Bible, the language of the oppressed and afflicted is not rioting. The language of the oppressed is what? Prayer. Prayer. That is the language of the oppressed in Scripture. Right? Uh, Psalm 1017 through 18. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And that's the language of the oppressed. Prayer. Right? To a father who listens, always, to the voice and the outcry of the oppressed and the afflicted. Psalm 22, 23, and 24. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from them. But He has heard when He cried to Him. Right? So so if there's one thing we can do, it is to pray for the afflicted and the oppressed and we should be praying for those who feel this way uh, justified or not however it is they're experiencing it we should be praying for those around the world who uh, who are victims who are oppressed who are trampled on who oftentimes whose rights are um, are ignored uh, but, but is that all there is is there something else we can do right and there's a sense that well I can pray but that's just not going to solve the problem maybe. Uh, maybe we don't believe enough in God, but actually Jesus speaks to this very issue, well, not the racial issue, but he speaks to this idea of peace right here in, in Matthew chapter 10, 34. And notice what Jesus says, right? These are, these are the words that should kind of trouble us a little bit. Jesus says to the disciples, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. What? <laughs> what? Uh, do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. It's like, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, time out, time out, Jesus. Like, I thought you were the Prince of Peace. Like, if you're not the Prince of Peace, like, what, what's happening here, right? Hold the bus. What happened to the whole, like, when Jesus was born, singing the whole, peace on earth, Goodwill to men, right? What, what, what is with that? And now Jesus is saying, I didn't come to bring peace. In fact, he goes on in the next verse to say, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wow. Who, who is this Jesus, right? What is this about? Um, by the way, the translation, peace on earth, goodwill to men, is a terrible translation. Because uh, that's actually not what it says in the Greek. What it really says is peace and goodwill to men on earth. Not peace on earth. Jesus never promised, and he will never accomplish peace in this world uh, until he comes and, and, and brings massive judgment. Okay, Uh, and that is because there is peace only in his kingdom, right? There's only one way to peace, and that is peace through Jesus Christ by coming into his kingdom and becoming his children. That is the only way of peace. We have to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. There is peace in the kingdom of light. But there is war between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, There will never be peace between those two kingdoms, right? Like, we don't believe that. We don't believe that somehow we're going to make peace with darkness. The Bible's clear on that one. No, there is peace in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is at war with the kingdom of the world. And there will never be peace between those two kingdoms until God judges it, right? And not only that, but the Bible is also clear that there will never be peace in the kingdom of darkness, right? Where does it ever say in Scripture that this world will achieve peace apart from Jesus. Well, nowhere, right? So the sad reality is uh, that the the, un- the strife and unrest and conflict and and oppression that we see is never going to go away, right? Now, now that's not to say that there's not things that we as Christians shouldn't or cannot do, uh, and and we'll see some things in this passage that we can do. Um, But it's important to understand that for Jesus, there was something far more important than peace. Peace was not the highest goal of his life, right? And so that's why he says, look, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring the sword because that's not the mission now. Now, of course, one day Jesus will come. He will restore his kingdom. He will judge the world. There will be peace. But there were way more important things that he needed to do first before that could happen. Um, so, so it's it's good that we have these times of uprising and, and we hear some of these voices. It's good reminders for us, and and for me, my experiences at Atlanta and with Acts twenty nine changed me. And I hope that during this time of all this unrest, it changes you, right? That we become more tuned in and more sensitive and more aware of oppressed peoples around the world, and we pray for them. We come alongside them. Um, but but we need to be clear that we are never going to change the world. Right? That somehow we're going to bring about peace because we protest or demonstrate or because I posted something on Facebook. Right? It doesn't work that way. Uh, so so Jesus is the one who can bring peace, and um, but he, he but he also says that that he came to bring a sword. So let's look at what Jesus says here about this and unpack it a little a little deeper. Um, uh, Jesus does say, I came to bring uh, not peace but a sword. Uh, and the truth is that the gospel divides. And, and for Jesus there was something far more important than, than peace and what was far more important was salvation. Right? Peace would be meaningless if he did not save people from their sins and bring them into right relationship with God. And so for Jesus the top priority was uh, the gospel message right the 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 message of his death for sinners to bring salvation and healing and and that is the ultimate hope of the world. The hope of the world is that they would receive this message and they would enter into god 's kingdom, which is a kingdom of peace right that that's the hope and that's the mission and so in chapter 10 at the beginning of chapter ten, Jesus says sends out his twelve disciples to proclaim the message of peace no. <laughs> No, that's not what he said. He said to proclaim the message of the gospel, the message of the gospel, uh, and to heal the sick. The gospel, the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, But he warns them that this is not going to go like they think. Right? That that people are not going to welcome them, and they're going to face persecution and hatred, and ultimately, uh, some of them will die. They will be imprisoned. They will be beaten. For the sake of this message, right? but Jesus sends them anyway, as as a sheep among wolves, because the message was so important. It's, it was the only way of salvation for this lost world. Um, so, so Jesus says, uh, uh, summarizes all of it in the end by saying, "I have not come to bring bring peace, but the sword." The sword. The sword re- represents division. Inevitable division between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Right, The only way this is going to go forward is if that division comes about because the kingdom of Christ must be proclaimed. Um, and, and he says in these verses, he continues on, he says, this division will run so deep, right? this, this, this conflict between these two kingdoms will go so deep that it will affect even your family relationships. Your most significant relationships will be ripped apart by this message. He says, I, I, have come to, I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Right? That's how deep this runs. That the, the, the relationships that we should most count on, that should be the, the most indestructible, a parent and a child, um, that even those relationships would be ripped apart by the proclamation of the gospel message. And Jesus says, he doesn't just say it's going to happen. He says, I have come to set you, to divide you. Right? And, de- and Jesus doesn't mean here that he wants to cause this kind of conflict or strife. It doesn't mean that he's trying to, to get, um, as Christians, as followers, that we should disrespect our parents or be mean to them. Uh, in other places, he makes it clear we need to love our parents. We need to love our children. But he, he knows the reality that this message will be divisive. Right? And if you proclaim the message, if you hold on to the message, if you believe the message, it will be, devi- it will be divisive. Uh, and there cannot be peace. Because the only way that there can be peace is if the two kingdoms are, become one as people come to Jesus. Right? The only way there will not be conflict in your family is if your family members come to Christ and join you in the kingdom of light. Otherwise, we live in two opposing worlds that are at conflict, and there cannot help but be division. Um, So so why is it that that we can't be Christians and get along with everyone? I mean, why is it that this conflict is so inevitable? And for, for many of us living in the West, we've inherited a tradition where for uh, quite a long season, it really has been the case that we've been able to be Christians and live at peace with the world. And most of us have grown up where uh, being a Christian oftentimes was actually respected. And people actually liked you because you were a Christian. Uh, And that was because uh, we shared in the West a largely Christian worldview. And so uh, it didn't get us into conflict. It didn't get us into fights. But times are changing, right? Times are changing quickly before our eyes and that uh, Christian worldview is gone in the world and the majority worldview is, is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. And Jesus explains the root of the problem. Why is it? Why is it that Christians just can't get along with people, right? Why is it we can't follow Jesus and just be nice and kind of not harm people and, and it'll just be okay, Anybody vote for that? I vote for that. Why can't that happen? Well, Jesus explains why in the next verses. He says this. um, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Here's the problem. Um, Jesus uh, saves us by grace. Uh, but he calls us to a radical kind of discipleship—to be followers of him, where we love him and give devotion and loyalty, loyalty to Jesus above everything, above everything—even above family, above our parents, but even above our children. Think a lot of Christians got to re- reread this verse. He's not just talking here about our, our, our relationship with our parents, but we are to love Jesus even more than our own children. Uh, that Jesus is not saying here. Yeah, just kick them out of your house and little brats. Just get rid of them, you know. But, no, no, he's not saying that. He's saying love your children, love your children with all your heart. I mean, pour your life into your kids and your parents. But he's saying when it comes to devotion to your highest level of commitment, nothing should be more important to you than Jesus and His kingdom and His message. It is a radical call to choosing between every other loyalty and every other commitment in Christ. And Jesus says, I must be first. If you want to be a true disciple, I must be first. And that's the source, I believe, of the, of the division and conflict. Like, if we kept this whole message just simply, well, you sinned, and, and by God's grace, he, he'll save you of your sin, he'll make you a clean person. I don't think for the most part the world gets upset about that. Right? If that were all there was, it's like, yeah, you can have forgiveness and you can get all cleaned up and you can be clean inside and, uh, and you could be a better Buddhist now because, you know, you, you got rid of that bad karma and life's good. I don't think the world has a problem with that. Where they have a problem is when you take to the next step and say, now because Jesus has saved you by grace, he's called you to a life of radical commitment to follow him above everything, even above you and you and this and, and this commitment takes second place, Jesus takes first. And that's where the world says, what? What? You mean to tell me Jesus is more important than I am? Those are fighting words, right? Those are, those are sources of conflict. How many have followed Jesus to the mission field and had their parents say, you're taking our grandkids away from us? You know, we hate you for that. <laughs> right? Uh, how could you do this to us? How could you abandon us? Right? And and we say, it's because my allegiance is to Christ first. Right? And, and they are insulted by that. Um, how many people have had to tell their boss, look, I'm a follower of Christ, and I can't commit my whole life to this job? I have to commit to uh, to, to to church and to the body of Christ and to taking care of my family. I'm not going to work eighty hours a week for you. And the boss says, what? You're not going to give me absolute allegiance over your whole life? I'm going to find a way to get rid of you. Right? Uh, they they do not like that. Right? That's where the rub comes. When we tell the world, we, we're not committed to your program anymore because we are following Christ. And that's where the conflict comes. And so Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be worthy of me, You must take up your cross, right? Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And just to clarify on this concept of worthiness, he's not saying here that we earn salvation, that we're worthy of grace, right? That we have to do this in order to show we merit God's salvation. That's not what he's saying. We are saved by grace, But once we are saved by grace, we are called to be a a follower, an all-out follower of Jesus, who will take the message to the lost world. And that's what he's been talking about in this whole chapter, right? You need to be witnesses. You need to go out there and faithfully proclaim the kingdom. Why? Because it's the only way of salvation. It is the only hope for your family. They may hate you, but Jesus and the message of the gospel is their only hope. If you really love them, you will put Christ first and you will proclaim Christ in word and deed. You'll make sure that your life measures up. And that's what that word worthiness means right there. It means that your life measures up to the calling of God's grace in your life. Right? That you you demonstrate the life that is worthy of that message. So that the way we live and the, and the words we speak are Visible witnesses to the presence of Christ in our life. That's what it means to be worthy. Paul talks about uh, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And it simply means that our life lines up with with the gospel of Christ. And the only way that can happen, Jesus says, is if you take up your cross and follow me. If you you commit to a life of all-out devotion to Christ, even sacrificing your own life and death if that's what it requires, right? So we're not talking just about uh, parents and children take second place, but even our own life, even our own goals and our own agendas and our own reputation uh, take back seat to Jesus who is Lord over our life. Um, and so he, he says that in the end, this is what salvation really is. He says, whoever does not uh, take his cross and follow me is not worthy. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Um, by that he means um, uh, holding on to the stuff of this world. you know, Finding good reputation, finding affirmation from people uh, will lose their life in eternity. But those who lose their life on this earth We'll find it through eternal life with Christ. Um, so, so, if there's something you could do, we said you could pray, something else you could do that will matter, that will make a difference, is to walk worthy. Right? Take up your cross, sell out for Jesus, make him absolute priority, and live out the gospel message. Right? Live it out, 100%, by showing that Jesus matters to you more than anything. Okay, that, That's doing something that will impact the world. Because they will see Christ, and some, as we will see, will respond. And they will join you in the kingdom of light. But before we move on, uh, one, one more thing we got to talk about here, though, is who, who is Jesus to ask so much like, uh, we, we kind of get that to follow him, we need to be all out, all, all, or all in, however you want to say it. Love him 100%. But the question is, who is Jesus to demand so much? This seems pretty outrageous. That's a pretty huge ask. Now, in a war, uh, if you're in combat, a commander would ask these kind of things of the soldiers. Right? A commander would order, you need to go up against that, and I know you've just got one gun and a grenade, but I want you to go up that against that battalion of tanks, and chances are you're going to die, but you're our only hope, right? You go out there and you sacrifice your life, right, for the sake of the battle. A commander will do that. But a commander would never do that and say, I want you to do that for my sake, right? No, that's not what they would say. They would say, do it for your country. Do it for freedom. Fight to protect your family and your homes, right? They wouldn't say, do it for me, but that's exactly what Jesus says here. Uh, if you do it for my sake, for me, you're doing this for me. You're laying your life down for me. Who is Jesus to make that kind of claim? That seems pretty outrageous. Well, uh, I would say that Jesus is worth it for a couple of reasons. Jesus is worth that kind of commitment, first of all. And he, and he has the right to make that claim, first of all, because he is king and judge. Right? We know the rest of the story. And Jesus uh, is uh, dies, he, he, he's buried, he rises again, and he ascends and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He sits in the place of ultimate authority over the world and the universe. Uh, and someday, all humanity will stand before him as judge. And someday, every knee will, will, will bow. Because he is worthy. right? So... Um, and as this king, he is the one who will bring eventually true and lasting peace and joy. Uh, he is the only way of true unending joy in our life. And the only solution to the world's problems, absolutely. There is no other way uh, apart from Jesus. Right? So, so he's worth it because in the end he wins. Right? In the end he will be successful and victorious. In the end he will accomplish his purpose. Right? And he's worthy. But he's worthy for a second reason. He's worthy, secondly, because he took up his cross and laid down his life for us. He calls us to take up our cross, but long before we could ever take up our cross and follow him, Jesus, the eternal God, the king of heaven and earth, took up his cross. And he took the hate and the humiliation of being called a criminal and, and all the abuse that was hurled at him and he carried his cross down that street as they mocked him and he willingly laid his life down and gave his life for you and I. Not because we deserved it. We were not worth it then. Right? We were not worthy when Jesus gave his life for us. We were sinners. We were his enemies. And yet Jesus took up his cross for us and died in our place. Uh, He is the God of the afflicted who hears the cries of the afflicted. And he laid down his life for them and for us. And and so Jesus is worth it because he is our Savior. Because he gave his life for us. He is worth it. Um, And he is worthy. Uh, So Jesus ends with, with these final words. He says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Uh, the principle here is that there is a prophet's reward, right? And, and, and for Jesus, it is, it, is, it is about this message. Right? It is about the message of eternal life that he offers through his, through his death, through his resurrection, through his paying the price for sin. And he's sending his disciples out into the world that's hostile. He sends them out as sheep among lambs. And he says, here, here's the deal. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the Father who sent me. So we uh, are called to a hard road, but we are salvation to this world, right? As we go out uh, in Jesus' name, uh, bearing witness to him through our life by walking worthy and by proclaiming the kingdom, we are the world's hope for salvation. And he says, whoever um, receives me, receives the one who sent me. If they welcome you, they don't beat you up, they don't throw you in jail. If they just welcome you because you are a representative of Jesus, right, they've taken a huge step towards salvation and towards the kingdom, Jesus says. He says, the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. He talks here about three groups, first the prophets, then the righteous and the little ones. The prophets are those out there boldly preaching the gospel. The twelve were, went out as prophets. right? They went out, sent out, proclaiming and preaching the gospel. The righteous would be those who uh, maybe were a kind of second level of disciples who maybe weren't out being sent to all different places, but they were living a righteous life. right? The gospel was transforming them. And they were living a witness by their righteous lifestyle. And people saw it. And they received them because of their righteousness in Christ. And then there's the little ones. The little ones are... are the lowest and most humble of disciples, right? Uh, those who are in the remote corners that um, people could easily overlook. But even they are disciples. The little grandma uh, faithfully praying for her grandchildren. Um, those who, who, who are overlooked by the world. Uh, that Christian May Bond who loves Jesus, right? Uh, she's not going to be a missionary, but she's being salt and light. And Jesus says, if you receive even one of these little ones, right, you've taken a step towards salvation. And in, in the smallest effort to help them counts. So there's even a cup of cold water. right? A cup of water usually doesn't cost a lot, it doesn't take a great deal of effort. But even that, even the smallest little gesture of welcome Right, is taking a huge step towards salvation. So, so here's the thing for us. Living here in Thailand, we live in a world where you're surrounded by people who are the enemy, who need Jesus. And some of us don't even speak Thai that well, and it's like, well, how can we do this? Well, here's the good news. If, if they know you're a Christian, if you live your life in a way that Jesus is evident, and they know you're here because of Jesus, and they welcome you, they, they help you in some way, you are opening the path for them to salvation in Christ. Right? And, and hopefully others will come along and they will hear that message clearly. And as they welcome you, right, you become the, the, the path for them to know uh, life in Christ, the life in Jesus. Um, so, so chapter 10 starts out by Jesus saying, I'm sending you out. And a lot of people aren't going to respond. And some people are going to be downright hostile towards you. But he ends with these encouraging words. Some will receive you. Some will give you that glass of cold water. Some will welcome you. And for those people, it is salvation. And that's the most important thing. right? Because for those people, it's their step towards real peace. So what can you do? Let me sum up. Here's four things you can do. You can pray for the oppressed. Right? Listen to their stories. Learn what they go through. And pray for them to the Father who promises to hear the voice of the afflicted and do something about it. Right? Secondly, walk worthy of your calling. Right, Live a life that measures up by your all-out devotion and commitment to Christ. Thirdly, proclaim Jesus. Right? He's the only answer. He's the only thing that will make a difference in this world, is to know Him. And lastly, brace for war. <laughs> brace for war. Right? Because as you proclaim Him, you will meet opposition. But don't be un- unraveled by it. Just keep being uh, faithful witnesses to the Gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You so much that Jesus took up His cross and despising its shame, endured the cross, uh, laying down his life as a sacrifice for our sin, as the one who put himself in our place and received our punishment and took the wrath of God in our place. And because of that, uh, the lamb is worthy. And 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 the message of the gospel is worth it. Lord, may we be... Uh, fiercely devoted to Christ. Uh, May our loyalty and devotion to Christ be uh, unchallenged by any other love or affection. And Lord, where where other things threaten to become more important to us than Jesus, Lord, convict us of those things. Lord, Lord, show us those idols that are uh, creeping in and threatening to take the place of Jesus as the supreme love of our life. And Lord, may may our love for you truly be a witness to the world around us. And may we uh, not worry about um, the repercussions, the hatred that we may experience because of it, Uh, the pushback that we may get because we stand up for Jesus. Lord, help us know this is part of our witness and our testimony and to boldly stand up for you. Lord, we do pray for the oppressed. Lord, we pray for people demonstrating all over the world who are hurting people. And many of them have been oppressed. And, and um, they are victims. And uh, whether in a big scale or a small scale, they, they're hurt people. And Lord, I pray that they would come to know that, that you hear their voice and you will come to their aid and help them, that you will not ignore the cries of the afflicted, and help us as as your church to stand with them, to come alongside them, and to love them and serve them, Lord, that we would give them a glass of cold water, and they would welcome our our love and our help. So Lord, we pray that all this would be for your glory, because Jesus is truly worth it all. And we thank you in, in his name. Amen.